Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I am Ben Duncan, and this is a place where prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana share their stories. In today's episode, I'm excited to be joined by Grant Ongstad. Grant is an experienced Salesforce professional based out of Phoenix, Arizona, and he is someone I reached out to having read his content on LinkedIn. In the episode, we explore Grant's early career, how he came from a non-technical background but found his way into the Salesforce consulting space, and what he recommends non-technical people learn or focus on if they're looking for a Salesforce career. Grant shares why he spends a lot of time fixing Salesforce orgs, what he looks for when he starts with a new customer, and when companies should look for external support if their Salesforce platform isn't humming. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I recommend checking Grant out on LinkedIn. Grant, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Really great to have you, and uh, yeah, really really keen to unpick your journey, hear a bit more about you, and uh, uncover some of the stuff you've been doing in the Salesforce world. We may have some listeners that have been following you on LinkedIn, and if not, I recommend people do. I think you're putting out some great content, um, but we'll get to that. What, what I'm keen to understand first is a bit more about your early career, your journey, and I guess the, the early career path that you followed. Yeah, absolutely. Ten years ago, right, I'm stumbling around the professional world, and I was sort of lost, right? I, I had my degree out of college in English literature. Uh, I didn't want to be a teacher, though, and that seemed to be the only path that people were taking. So at that point, I'm just I'm just really kind of stumbling around. I don't know what job I'm going to take. I'm also a personal trainer at that time, so so things were a little uncertain. You know, I, I knew a little bit about Excel, so I took a temp job doing just data entry and data cleansing. And what I didn't know at, a t- at the time was for account data, and it was going to be for for Salesforce implementation. So yeah, just going through Excel sheets of, of Salesforce data, and I found myself just really liking coming up with ideas on how to clean data and actually ended up getting, you know, uh, becoming friends with uh, a developer there and um, came up with these, and this is with SQL Server, but it came up with some store procedures. I would sort of riff off what I think the logic was, was right? I'd talk to the business and come up with some logic, and then he would come around and, and create these, these scripts or store procedures to clean this source data and put it into Salesforce. Well, that was my introduction to the technical world. I never thought that, hey, logic is involved in creating something technical, right? Like you don't have to have this coding experience to be able to contribute something. So, you know, that's the first role I took. And then fast forward, um, you know, we were working with a Salesforce partner. Post-implementation, the partner leaves uh, and they're without a Salesforce reset uh, resource. So at that time, I'd been on the platform for like a year. So I figured wouldn't hurt to get the certification and it worked out great. They gave me a raise, a big raise, and uh, offered me a job as a business systems analyst. So that was my introduction to the Salesforce world, coming from an English major to a personal trainer to, to the Salesforce world. Yeah, nice. And in, in that first year then, were you like mainly manipulating data and, and on the business side, so kind of working through, like, did you, did you get hands-on with the platform? Did you kind of cross over to the, the implementation side? Yeah, so a lot of times it was just coming through customer data in Excel files and then in SQL Server and sort of understanding data modeling and the database side, which I think ended up serving me really well um, later. 
before it, it was really like not even touching Salesforce at the time. And then I actually shared at that time when people worked in offices, um, I shared an office with the technical architect and one of the consultants who were there as well. And so I picked their brain, like, what are you doing? What's that? Oh, it's an object. And, oh, you can just drag and drop the page layout. So, you know, kind of leaned over their shoulder and learned that. And then when they left, I was pretty much the accidental admin and just kept learning more and more. My boss would be like, hey, do you think we can do that? And I'm like, I'll figure it out, right? Directly in prod. <laughs> uh, something I wouldn't do today, but uh, but yeah, so so it got gradually more hands-on and then kind of just went all into it, became obsessed and, and you know, joined the, the Ohana. Yeah, nice. So what, one thing I want to focus in on, because I think there are lots of people in the, in the world now that are trying to make that step into the Salesforce world. I think, you know, obviously there was a benefit in the fact that you were in a business that were implementing Salesforce and, and then that's how you got the opportunity. But a lot of people are maybe unemployed now looking to make that transition and don't come from a technical background in the same way that you didn't. And you, you mentioned they're like focusing in on like data modeling and, and things like that. What are some of the kind of key areas that you would recommend someone that isn't technical focuses on in order to become more technical? Not not just like Salesforce related stuff, but things that like an IT background or IT skills that are, are useful in the Salesforce world. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and everyone has a different path. Like whenever someone asks me how I got into it, I just say I was in the right place at the right time. And I do think a lot of it is attributed to to just that sort of serendipity, like putting yourself out that there, getting yourself in that mental mindset where you're just, I don't know, you're putting it out to the universe, right? But besides all that, like magical things that, that might not occur, like I found that, you know, I was pulled a lot of directions early on. Like I said, I developed a good proficiency in data modeling and SQL Server. And on the other hand, I was interested in development. So I kind of went into a YouTube rabbit hole. I was kind of pulled all different directions. But I got some really good advice from another recruiter, actually. Uh, his name is Chris Hopper. I don't know if you follow Chris Hopper or have heard of him. I said, hey, Chris, man, I'm struggling. Like, I don't know if I should go the development route. Like, do I, do I need to go to like a coding boot camp and like, and he said, uh, he quoted Earl Nightingale. He tells this allegory about the gold mine. I'm going to butcher it. But basically, this guy, he sells his gold mine uh, or he sells his land and out to look looking for gold, right? And so he travels all around the world and never finds it and dies, right? And then they find that he had a gold mine like at his house on his property, like under where he lived, right? So, you know, again, I butchered it. But the point is, like, if you sit down and take inventory of the skill sets you have, I'm sure you'll find that you have a lot more value than you think. And there's something that can translate into Salesforce, whether it's like, hey, I love talking to customers and understanding their problems. It's never a bad idea to get your business analyst cert and go down that path. Or maybe you like testing things and you like breaking things. QA, right? That's a great entry level to start start doing QA. If you like managing projects, right? There's Salesforce project managers. I mean, there's just such a wide range of not specifically technical things you can do. And if you want to do technical things, you can, but don't feel pressured like you need to go that route or be technical. I even hate, you know, all looking at job descriptions, I'll see like must come from a computer science background or have your master's in computer science to be a, a Salesforce admin. And certainly there's tenants that you'll pick up along the way. But if your mind's in the right place and you want to learn and you're motivated, like just go where that's taking you. 
Yeah, it's it's really good advice from from Chris. I think, um, and then from you, obviously. But um, I, I get a lot of people that approach me and say, "Oh, you know, like I'm an admin now, but there's so much, so many more jobs for developers. I'm thinking of becoming a developer." And I'm like, you know, do you actually enjoy coding? Because if you don't, like, don't just become a developer for the sake of it. Like, become a developer if that's what you want to do, if that's what you're passionate about. Because if you're not passionate about coding, then you're not going to enjoy coding for eight hours a day. Right. I second that. And I've had conversations with other people about that too. They'll be like, I want to be a developer. And I'm like, why do you want to be a developer? And it's the same thing. Like, oh, they pay more and there's more jobs. And it's just not that straightforward. And I find like, if pay is your concern, you can get there in any any work stream, right? Any career path within the sales force. We'll say like the pyramid, right? If you're architect, or admin. I mean, admins can make great consultants, great senior consultants can go into management. Project managers can become portfolio managers, right? So if you follow that, like you said, um, that interest and do something that's like you're actually you actually want to do, it'll take you somewhere. Definitely. Just on on the topic of like um, the different paths you can go down now. Like, would you say the requirement to be an admin is more technical now though than when you became an admin? It's interesting because when I hear technical, I, yeah, I wouldn't really call it technical because it all sort of lives in the Salesforce box, right? So there's certainly more things you have to know, but there's also less. I mean, example with Flow, we were talking earlier before is with Flow. Flow used to be really annoying. Like all you can do is screen flow and it, you had to like the way to assign variables was much different. It was very clunky. And now it's sort of, sort of easier than ever as far as being able to declaratively build flows and do things like loops. But then there's also, because it's so much more robust, there's more things you have to think about architecturally. Like, will this scale? Is this going to break? Am I handling faults? What's, you know, are there any other processes that are firing that are competing for resources? Things like that. Is it bulkified, right? Admins need to be more architecturally minded than they used to be. I would say that. Maybe not technical, but thinking big picture. And would you say that's easy to, not easy, but like that's achievable for most people? Anyone can do it, right? It'll take you longer. I push new learners to really focus on the platform basics before jumping off into different paths, right? Master security, learn the object model really well. Be able to talk through, you know, master detail, lookups, pros and cons. Be able to talk through sharing settings, profiles, permission sets, all those things. Like it's boring, but if you kind of focus on those core features and you focus on the platform, I think it's going to serve you well. And I, and I don't think it's hard necessarily. It just takes focus. So when you made that step from um, from being a, in, on the end user side, working for a customer to then going into consulting, what was it that appealed firstly? And, and secondly, like, was that quite a steep learning curve for you? Yeah. So there was always a part of me that wanted to go into Salesforce consulting, even from the moment when uh, I started learning about Salesforce at my at my first role. And so the idea of being an expert in the room solving business problems just like really motivated me and i can't i can't ignore the salary aspect they pay well i mean no one argues you no one can argue that uh and a lot of times being a salesforce consultant is going to be the best pay you can get in the salesforce world so i knew that i wanted to get really good at salesforce uh and also the best way just the best way to do that was salesforce consulting 
the hesitancy for me was at the time I had two kids and the idea of like getting on a plane every week, which was the which was the reality for many consulting firms, the big fours, like the crazy hours, getting on a plane. I just couldn't make that sacrifice. And then eventually had conversations with the recruiter. He told me about this consulting firm. They're all remote. And this is before COVID. They're all remote. They love work-life balance. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So I threw in my hat, got denied, right? Threw in my hat again, same company, got denied again. And then they came back to me a couple months later and I got the role. So third time lucky. And and what was what's different, I guess? A lot of the time you are doing from a platform perspective, you're doing the same thing, right? You're configuring your your understanding requirement, but it's just you're working with different customers and, and different challenges. But what would you say the biggest learning curve for you was going into consulting? There's a couple of aspects. One is like you're pressured to be the expert, right? Like People are paying you a lot of money, the client side, to be the expert. There's definitely this sense of like pressure on you to know everything. So you're shifted from like Salesforce as being a part of the job you do to it being your job. And your job is to be an expert at it. So definitely more involved in the Salesforce world, thinking about certifications and my learning path. Um, that was one change and, you know, a, a learning curve. The second part was, I would say, time management, right, for consulting because everything's billable or, or you know, you need to build a client for the work you do. So sort of thinking strategically about the work I'm about to do and coming up with a plan or following a project plan to do it was, was new. So all these things, SOWs, these big project plans, forecasting, all of that, all of that was new to me. And so that, those are probably the biggest learning curves. Other than that, you know, I loved that you're incentivized to learn Salesforce. Your training's paid for, your certifications are paid for. So I love the fact that you're encouraged to learn. If you're a Salesforce professional and you just want to keep learning, I, I highly recommend consulting. So if, if someone looks at your LinkedIn, uh, one of the, I think the strap line is um, around uh, you fix Salesforce orgs or, you know, that's that's the area you play in, which I think a lot of consultants that I speak to, they want the new greenfield, like big, shiny implementations. Like, why, why do you enjoy fixing orgs? I don't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> There's always going to be Salesforce implementations, and I, and I do those. Um, but where I see an equally growing demand are organizations that have implemented Salesforce in the past, or maybe they never even went through a proper implementation in the first place. And now they're sort of staring at this mess of an org that seems unmanageable, you know, years later. They've got automation that's broken, uh, objects and fields that aren't used, uh, low adoption rate. There's a ton of companies like this. And probably anyone who listens has have worked at a company like this or has seen an org like this. So it's like a home renovation, right? A lot of companies don't realize that they don't have to sell their home and buy a new one. They can renovate and, and upgrade their current one. So for me, I just see such a big demand for people that need guidance. Salesforce orgs that are underperforming, that's where the, the fixing an org came from. And so what do you do? Like you go into a customer, they've got a problem. What are the initial things you do when you get onto a customer site and go, right, I'm going to work out where things have gone wrong. Yeah, so the interesting thing is it's not always a platform problem, right? It could be on the process level. They don't know how to manage changes. They don't know what changes to prioritize. 
They don't have a solid deployment process. They have no documentation or no one is trained properly. Um, or maybe they don't have the resources just to support their implementation in the first place. So it wasn't ever really finished. So usually it's owning in on the business frustration and finding those processes that aren't working and sort of reining it in uh, and making a plan to address those things first. And then it's looking at, at the system architecture. It starts at the processes and it starts at the business. I imagine that there's so many leaders out there that have invested in Salesforce and just think it is what it is. You know, like this is how Salesforce works. Like it's just Salesforce, right? This is, it's been done, you know, it's, it's working. It's maybe not as fast or, you know, it's not solving any problems that they don't know could be solved by Salesforce. Like, and I guess if you've got an admin in the team, they're looking at those things, right? They're, they should be looking at best practice and making recommendations around automations and all these things. But if a company doesn't have a dedicated admin that, that's taking care of that, like they probably don't even know that there are better ways of doing things or that there are things that aren't optimal at the moment that could be changed. So what, what can a user, a business user, a leader of a business look for in their role to know that, right, maybe we do need to get someone in to fix up some of what we've got? Yeah, I don't think there's this moment that just appears, right? At any point, your org can be disconnected from its business process, and that's where an org breaks, and it's time to make some changes. Also, those changes don't have to be massive, like grand gestures. Every organization, regardless of size, needs to be actively architected. So meaning someone should be looking over the system architecture to make sure it scales and, and you know you, it, that it serves the business and you have a roadmap. I think if you don't have that guidance, your org is broken, right? Or, or it's not living up to its potential. And if you don't feel like, I mean, because you know, if, if you're the product owner or if you're responsible for Salesforce, it's in your stack. There's something that's like, I don't think, I'm pretty sure Salesforce can do that, this, right? It's so much money. We pay so much money every month or every year. I think Salesforce can do that. That's why I'm such a huge fan of what I do and, and what I'll call like fractional architecture as a service, right? Someone that can provide guidance, help manage work streams. If you don't have that oversight, you're probably missing something. So when you say fractional architecture, you mean like not having a full-time architect, but calling on someone as and when needed for, for these big, like, you know, improvements or just, just even little tweaks that can, can make a difference to the, the customer. Right. Because my, I mean, my assumption is if you're this person, you feel your Salesforce isn't working optimal, um, you might not have these resources at your disposal that bigger companies have, like you know, a seasoned product manager and a technical architect and a solution architect and an admin and a developer, right? And so having someone, an expert that can sort of scale up and learn your business processes, take a look at your org holistically and figure out what can be changed, what can be optimized, what can go, and just provide making sure that you're doing things right and that you're that you're on the right track, that you'll scale, that nothing's going to break down the line, that users are adopting Salesforce, that you have a roadmap, that backlog items are being added and prioritized. I think, you know, that definitely makes sense. So if you're doing a lot of these kind of advisory refreshes, like if you're going into a lot of these orgs and picking up sometimes the mess from, from someone else, what they've delivered, like, are there any real bad cases of people not following best practice that jump out to you, like from a technical system perspective? 
Yeah. From the technical perspective, there are certainly a lot of things that you can find. And the trouble is when you go into a new org or an org you've never been in, you can make a lot of judgments and assumptions. But who knows? There might have been a business reason for someone doing something at some point, right? Maybe sales managers have access to delete opportunities and you think oh, that's a that's a bad idea or, or whatever it is, right? So, I mean, it's easy to point fingers, but I think it all stems from lack of control and a lack of a plan. So whenever these orgs break, uh, it's usually because someone was inundated with requests and they simply end up taking orders from the business and they follow they follow into status quo. So one thing that I encourage is you need to know what changes are being made right in, in Salesforce and who's making them. You need to have a process for managing change. You need to have a roadmap and you need to understand, most importantly, understand the problem that you're trying to solve. So again, I, I think it all goes back to process. If you can figure out the problem you're solving and you have the right processes, you're much less likely to fall in those sort of destructive patterns and habits. What, what about the business that doesn't have that internal capability, right? So they don't have a product owner, product manager. They don't have anyone that knows Salesforce. Like how can, if they're working with a partner to do a, an implementation, how can you kind of make sure that people aren't cutting corners, right? And, and aren't, you know, delivering things quickly and, and at the, I guess, suboptimally for, for ongoing, uh, you know, scalability and stuff. Like how, how do you actually, how can you be aware of that if you're not a Salesforce person? So you're saying if I'm, let's say I'm an admin and I have a partner come in, how do I know that you're doing good work? Yeah, or even like a CIO or a business systems manager or something, you know, you've outsourced this work to a partner. Because we we hear horror stories all the time around, um, you know, partners doing implementations that that are suboptimal and ultimately it's handed over to this customer to then support or, you know, to, to, they're not getting ultimately what they think they are. But if you're not technical, if you're not, going to go in and read the code and look that it's it's built the the correct way like are there things that that you would recommend that a a customer is kind of aware of or questions that they ask or you know what they look to see or or, yeah ultimately just to kind of safeguard them against bad practice yeah um so first i would say if you're going to invest in a salesforce implementation you need to make sure on the business side that you're all in also, that you're equally committed. So a lot of times, you know, you kind of give the reins over to this implementation partner or this consulting group, and they don't know the business. You can't assume that they know the business. So you've got to have someone on your side who's a subject matter expert who's working closely with them, who's holding them accountable. And you just have to have good project management. You need to be actively have someone or be actively involved the entire project, right? You just can't let them run loose and then here it is, right? Go in, go UAT. Oh, it looks good. Okay, see you later. You know, you need to be co-creators. And I think good partners will push that and they'll they'll really work to manage that expectation. Hey, you need to be in this with me. You know, we're building this together. That means we're going to build a lot of documentation. That's another thing is I would highly recommend, I mean, it's non-negotiable. You need documentation. So that's that's one way is is you know the CIO or whoever should should make sure that they're getting plenty of documentation the implementation partner can reason through their approach that they can walk them through design specs and and yeah it's all those things but but I think most importantly it's it's that co-creation creating that relationship early on where both sides are working closely together 
brings me back to a memory I have of I placed a candidate in a role and uh, they're a technical architect. And this was like several years ago, but they joined just after the project had started. So they they came in and the, the a partner had already kind of started building stuff. And um, they reviewed some of the code that the partner had written. And they said, look, this is terrible. This is really bad code. Like what, like uh, why? The partner's response, the, the person that was responsible for it turned around and said, oh, that was only a small piece of work. Like we didn't need to like write good code. Like it was only a small piece, like just to ship it. Like we, we just needed to get it done. And he was like, so if you, for a small piece of work, if you're writing bad code, like why do you think we'd give you a big piece of work? But the, the thing is, like, had he not joined the product project, then I can only imagine what would have been delivered because, you know, without that technical person actually reading code, how do you know that they're actually doing the right thing? It's, it's such a difficult thing, right? Like, even if you're partnering with them and, and being on that journey with them, if you don't know Salesforce, you, you don't know what you don't know, right? It's a really difficult one to, to make sure that they're doing things the way, the way they should. Yeah, absolutely. And as a as a consultant, you know, I've been in plenty of orgs where you go in and you, you know, you definitely scratch your head like, why did they put this here? This makes no sense, right? I mean, really, you don't know what you don't know. It is a risk. I, I would say close coordination and and you need to show me a working product often. Give me demos. Impress me. We'll run UAT, right? And a really well-defined UAT and a UAT that, and this is so important, is active business participants because i because i can't tell you how many times i've been on a project where the business is like oh yeah we're going to assign these people to uat who like they'll just they're just going to do it when they're not working on their off time right and then they'll give you their the scripts back and like no we need live uat not necessarily in person right but block a timeout go through uat have a process for logging changes the whole shebang right take it seriously yeah, 100%. Yeah, and I guess, um, yeah, it's right. It's, it's, it all comes back to collaboration. And also, I guess, like doing your background checks, right, on the partners and, and working out, like, who are the right ones, who, what have you delivered before? Like, can we speak to people that you've delivered work for in the past? Um, there are ways of finding out the quality of a partner if, if, you, if you're thorough enough, I guess. Right. And testimonials are great. Referrals. App Exchange reviews are sort of one-sided because as a partner, you're incentivized to get five-star reviews. You, you know, you might push surveys to people who are going to respond positively and be like, give us five-star reviews because if you get a four-star review, that messes with our recommendation or score, which is kind of backwards. I mean, you want, you want honest reviews. You really want to know what you can improve, right? So... Yeah, I think if that process was automated, it would be better. Like once a project was delivered, there was some way of like in, in the Salesforce partner community, like you tick it, it's done. Like they automatically get a survey, whether it was a good project or a bad project. Like I, I think that that is true. Like, you you know, you see people celebrating how many five stars they've got, but they're in control of, over who they ask. Right. And you can ask as many times as you want. You can create a project and send it to them. Like it could be like made a report. All right, send them the review, and they'll be like, "Great, you know, and that's another that's another five star review, right?" Because you made a report, or definitely something that that I think I think partners take advantage of, and they're incentivized to, right? I don't blame them. Hundred mm-hmm, percent. Well, Grant, you're here today because I've been following your LinkedIn post. So, for anyone that's listening that wants to reach out, is LinkedIn the best place to find you? It is. I'm on it way too much, as my wife will attest. She's like, "Are you on LinkedIn again?" I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> don't hide it yeah well look, thanks so much i've really enjoyed the chat and uh, and yeah looking forward to seeing more content from you soon so thank you very much absolutely it's been a pleasure 
So that's a wrap for this week's episode. And thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the chat. And if you did, please make sure you have subscribed for future episodes that are coming through. I would also be very grateful if you would consider leaving a review on your chosen podcast platform as five-star reviews will help us to reach more trailblazers from across the world. I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon and thanks again.